morning, everyone. Hope you had a good evening. Good morning. Good morning. Got a lot to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Tuesday, October 3rd. McCarthy's next move. All eyes watching to see how the House Speaker responds to Congressman Matt Gates formally filing a motion to remove him from his leadership post. And happening today, a courtroom split screen. Hunter Biden said to be arraigned in federal court in Delaware and former President Trump expected to head back to court in New York for a second day of his civil fraud trial. trial. Also, nine-year-old Charlotte Senna rescued in a dramatic raid two days after she was abducted. Police tracking down the suspect based on a ransom note left for her parents. This also breaking overnight, Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar carjacked in Washington, D.C. at gunpoint, his car, his phone, his iPad, all taken. We are told, though, he is okay this morning. And after five months of strikes, Late Night is finally back. It's kind of weird coming back after being gone for five months. The studio was empty for so long, NBC converted to a spirit Halloween. And that's just that. Thanks to the picket lines, my writers got fresh air and sunshine, and they do not care for that. <laughs> now they're back safely in their joke holes. <laughs> doing what they do best, making my prompter word screen full of good and haha. So glad late night is back. I'm glad they're back. I'm offended by the notion that writers don't like the outdoors <laughs> or sunshine. The they're prompter too. joke screen. They're just a lot smarter yeah. and more coherent than we are. Makes me think of how important morning. those words are in our <laughs> prompter exactly, too, exactly. which wasn't working five minutes ago, by the way. And but we, now it we is. We pulled it together, and uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy's hoping to pull it together too. Will he? Won't he? He's We're gonna see. Crossing his fingers and toes, a vote could come as soon as today to determine the fate of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And it looks like he'll need Democrats to save him. Congressman Matt Gates has moved for a vote to potentially remove McCarthy as he leads a right-wing revolt against his own leader. We haven't seen a move like this in more than a century, and it comes when Congress is already scrambling to prevent a government shutdown next month. Well, I have enough Republicans where at this point next week, one of two things will happen. Kevin McCarthy won't be the Speaker of the House or he'll be the Speaker of the House working at the pleasure of the Democrats. And I'm at peace with either result because the American people deserve to know who governs them. McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republicans. Five have already said they would vote to get rid of him. And there's at least 13 other Republicans who are undecided but open to voting him out. That means McCarthy will need support from Democrats to hold on to the gavel. House Democrats are set to meet just hours from now to decide what to do. And sources tell CNN Speaker McCarthy will make a move as soon as today to try and kill the measure against him procedurally. It will give us the first sign of where his support actually lies. Let's bring in CNN congressional correspondent Lauren Fox. Uh, Lauren, as we look at the timeline and how things may happen over the course of the next 24 to 48 hours, the big question, what do Democrats do? Yeah, that is the key question this morning, Phil. And they're going to huddle around 9 a.m. this morning. Their leadership has been telling them for the last several weeks, don't go out and freelance your own deal with your Republican friends. Also, keep your powder dry because we want to have a broader conversation about this. Expect that that conversation is going to start to unfold this morning at 9 a.m. Now, we asked repeatedly yesterday if Jeffries and McCarthy had had a conversation to this point about the future of McCarthy's speakership. And yesterday, 
McCarthy said he had not spoken to Jeffries. Obviously, we are going to be watching to see if that changes given the dynamics, because there are a handful of Republicans who have already said they are willing to oust McCarthy. That means he is going to need Democrats. Here are a couple of Republicans who talked a little bit about why they made that decision. Well, really, I see it as, as two things. Um, one, do I vote against my friend Kevin McCarthy or do I, I go with my conscience? That's kind of where I'm at. And I'm currently praying about it, but I, I would, if it was right now, I would, I would vote to, um, to oust him, yes. I'm open-minded. I haven't decided yet, but I'll tell you something. It's very important that Matt puts, you know, accountability in our own leaders. McCarthy has two legislative days to take action. This is a privileged resolution that Matt Gates brought to the floor yesterday. But obviously, he could act as soon as today. He has a couple of procedural tactics he could deploy. The question, of course, is where are Democrats going to be, given the fact that you now have five Republicans who have said that they would be willing to remove the speaker from office. One thing to keep in mind is that Matt Gates yesterday went to the floor a couple of times. When he finally made the decision, it came with the thing in mind that there were going to be members who would be missing likely on Thursday. Senator Dianne Feinstein's funeral is on Thursday, which means that if they were going to take this action, conservative hardliners wanted to have as many people in the chamber as possible because you don't want to lower that vote threshold knowing that he wants to be successful here. Gates does has warned that he'll do this as many times as he needs to. He's not going to just do it once. But obviously, all eyes on the Democrats, like you said, Phil, they are going to be essential. I think the word to is what Kevin McCarthy's future is. Yeah, I think the word here is leverage, <laughs> to say the least. Lauren Fox, keep us posted. Busy day. Well, we have some good news to share with you this morning. Nine-year-old Charlotte Senna is safe at home this morning with her family after a two-day search. She went missing at a state park over the weekend while on a camping trip. A suspect is now in custody. Police say the crucial piece of evidence that led to a break in the case was a ransom note that was left at the parents' home. Our Jean Kassar is following all of this. Jean, thank goodness. This is what everyone was praying for, and it's oh. the news we have this morning. Fantastic news. Charlotte and her family, they were camping a little bit up the road here. This was the staging area where 400 searchers would gather before they would go out to try to find her. It's empty this morning because Charlotte was found alive. She knew she was being rescued. She knew that she was in safe hands. Charlotte Senna, the nine-year-old who went missing Saturday while camping with her family in upstate New York, has been found. Our prayers have been answered. An Amber Alert had been issued for the young girl Sunday morning after an exhaustive search of the state park left authorities fearing the worst, that Charlotte had been abducted. Approximately 400 certified search and rescue personnel, including the FBI, were searching for Charlotte, who disappeared while riding her bike near her family's campsite. And as each hour went on, Hope faded because we all know the stories. The first 24 hours, there's hope. But when you hit 48 hours, hope starts to wane. The governor says a break in the case came early Monday morning when the suspect left a ransom note in the Senna's mailbox. He literally drove up to the family's mailbox, assuming they were not home. 4.20 in the morning, 
opens the mailbox and inserts the ransom note, leaving a critical piece of evidence behind his own fingerprint. Police tested the document for fingerprints and searched law enforcement databases. Police worked diligently trying to find a match for a fingerprint. The hit came at 2.30 in the afternoon. There had been a DWI in 1999 in the city of Saratoga. A fingerprint was found that matched what was found on the ransom note. Investigators were able to track down the suspect, 47-year-old Craig Nelson Ross Jr., who resided in a camper behind his mother's home. Two SWAT teams entered the camper and located Ross and Charlotte. The little girl was found in a cabinet, covered. She was rescued. And Charlotte was taken to a hospital in Albany as a precautionary measure. The governor says she has been reunited with her family, and the suspect is now in custody, taken into custody at 6.30 last evening. And criminal charges, we expect them to be filed shortly. Poppy? Wow. Jean, their prayers answered for sure. Thank you for the reporting. Well, overnight, Congressman Henry Cuellar carjacked at gunpoint about a mile away from the Capitol in D.C. You know, police located the car, but they're still working to track down the suspect. CNN's Gabe Cohen joins us live from where it happened. Uh, Gabe, Gabe, a frightening thing, but not something that's a rarity in Washington these days. What actually happened here? Phil, you're right, and it's a terrifying situation. Just to set the scene for you here, we're standing in Navy Yard. This is a fairly upscale part of Washington. Uh, there are a lot of congressional leaders, young professionals who live here. You can see behind me, uh, less than a mile down this road is the U.S. Capitol, not far from where we're standing. About a quarter mile in that direction, Nationals Park, the baseball stadium. There are uh, bars and restaurants all over this area. It is a very busy area. And yet at 9.30 last night, Representative Henry Cuellar, right at this intersection, was carjacked by three armed assailants who didn't just make off with his car, his Honda, which, as you mentioned, was later recovered. But they also took his phone, his iPad, even his dinner. Uh, now, fortunately, the representative wasn't injured in the incident. We did get a statement in from his uh, chief of staff that reads, as Congressman Cuellar was parking his car this evening, three armed assailants approached the congressman and stole his vehicle. Luckily, he was not harmed and is working with local law enforcement. Thank you to Metro PD and Capitol Police for their swift action and for recovering the congressman's vehicle. And look, uh, Phil, all morning we have seen an increased police presence here at this intersection. Several of these police cars uh, parked around the area. It's not exactly clear if that's solely because of this incident, because the reality is this is an area that is often trafficked uh, by law enforcement, given not just the amount of people who live here, but also, also the proximity to the Capitol there. Uh, but look, as you mentioned, this is not unheard of here in Washington. We have seen violent crime increase dramatically this year here in the district, including motor vehicle thefts, Phil, which have close to doubled since this time last year. All right, Gabe Cohen for us from Washington. Thank you very much. Well, President Trump says he'll be back in the courtroom today after he attacked the attorney general prosecuting him here in New York and sounded off on the judge who will determine the fate of his business empire. And Late Night returns with hosts unleashing months of jokes bottled up because of the Hollywood writer's strike that brought production to a halt. 
We looked at the calendar today and check my math on this. I believe we have been off the air for 154 indictments. <laughs>
And the state will continue to try to prove its case today with the former accountant back on the stand as we head into the nitty-gritty testimony of these financial statements. Phil, Poppy? Another fascinating day ahead in court, I'm sure. Kara, thanks. Now, while Trump's trial continues in New York, President Biden's son, Hunter, will be in a Delaware courtroom just a few hours from now for his arraignment on three felony gun charges. Biden's attorneys say he won't plead not guilty, a request to appear remotely that was denied. Hunter Biden is accused of lying when he said he wasn't addicted to drugs when he bought the firearm in 2018. A plea bargain to resolve the charges fell through in July. It's the first time the DOJ has charged the child of a sitting U.S. president. Pope Francis breaking with years of Catholic tradition, suggesting for the first time that priests could bless some people in same-sex unions. It is a significant statement. We'll tell you more about it ahead. And Tom Hanks is warning fans that if they see him in an ad promoting a dental plan, it's not actually Tom Hanks. He says it's an AI version of him made without his permission. More on this next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. I have made no deal with Democrats because I believe that Democrats should vote against Kevin McCarthy for free. It's Kevin McCarthy who's out there offering deals to Democrats. If Kevin McCarthy goes and makes a dirty deal with the Democrats to keep power, I believe that the people in this country will rise up and demand that their representatives and their lawmakers uh, accept a better path, a more responsible path. Well, with his job on the line, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, could he cut a deal with Democrats to stop Congressman Matt Gates' attempt to force him out? Here to discuss, Kaylee Lyons, Washington correspondent for Bloomberg, and CNN senior political analyst John Avalon. I think it's worth noting, Kaylee, at least at the start, McCarthy has not offered anything to Democrats up yeah. to this point. Um, but the question and the reality is he's going to need some Democrats to vote with him. What do Democrats do here? 
Well, this is a really interesting question, because for many reasons, you could see why Democrats aren't eager to support Kevin McCarthy issue. A lot of them have trust issues with him, considering right now we're relitigating spending levels that we ever everybody thought was agreed to back in the debt ceiling deal of earlier this summer. So they have trust issues with him for that reason. Many of them are unhappy about the impeachment inquiry he has launched into President Biden as well. On the other hand, there is potentially an opportunity here for Democrats to extract concessions from him, possibly around that impeachment inquiry. Could it be forced to the vote on the floor that Speaker McCarthy just skipped over when launching it initially? Could they extract Ukraine funding commitments from him, considering they weren't included in this continuing resolution? There's a number of things Democrats could ask for here. Really, comes down to whether Speaker McCarthy is going to go for that, because yes, it may save him his gavel, but it could create a boatload of other problems for him politically. There are far worse things we could face than something resembling a coalition government in Congress. <laughs> uh, it would actually represent the will of the American people, as opposed to you know what Matt Gates and the radical right Republicans represent, or folks on the other side of the spectrum, which is, is, is an unrepresentative position that wants to push through their agenda. Um, McCarthy is, in effect, being punished for reaching out to Democrats to stop the government from shutting down. What the vast majority of American people want is government that actually works, that doesn't have these sort of self-inflicted wounds. Um, this is a pattern with Republicans. Mark, Mark Meadows tried to begin a process like this to Speaker John Boehner before he resigned. What's so, that? look, whether Republicans aren't, Democrats aren't necessarily going to follow themselves to bail out McCarthy. But if a deal was made for the Senate to hold, I think that would be far more popular than a bunch of folks on the extreme. I was going to ask you, John, to compare this to Boehner, because what sure. did, after that attempt, he stayed in for, what, three months? handful of months, yeah. Yeah, and so I just wonder your thoughts as you compare this moment and Kevin McCarthy to that moment. This is the crucial context. The last three speakers have all faced outright rebellion from their far right. They have a hard time, Republicans have a really hard time coming up with a stable governing coalition, not because of the opposition, but because of the far right wing of their own party. Boehner dealing with the Tea Party folks who Mark Meadows, you know, was, was a part of at that time. Uh, then Paul Ryan being constantly irritated and exhausted by the, what he called members of the conserva, uh, conservative uh, media complex who were constantly agitating him to take maximalist extreme positions rather than figuring out how to get the people's business done. And now this, the problems in the Republican coalition. Um, ultimately, Congress works when people parties work together. We see that in times of crisis, stopping shutdowns, avoiding the debt ceiling deal. That's actually how Congress should work more of the time. And we're being constrained by partisan orthodoxy here. Um, what are the odds that what John is pushing for right now is a plausible option? Well, it's going to come down to the decision of the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, and ultimately Speaker McCarthy as well. This idea that is he going to want to coalition government this in this House of Representatives in particular? And to your point about this being a very fractured Republican conference we are seeing, it's also not clear who the successor to McCarthy would mm -hmm. be, even if his getting ousted was successful. Sure, Congressman Gates yesterday suggested he would have support for the number two Republican, Steve Scalise, but it's not clear that he could actually get the who requisite McCarthy. Right, mm -hmm. or that he could get the requisite vote to actually become speaker. And of course, we all know how many rounds it took for McCarthy to become speaker Can you in the explain first to place? people what would actually happen then? What would actually happen if there's no one who wants... I, I know the sort of process. <laughs> I know the process that he has, like, privately a list and who yes. would be the first person and they get named. But does that person have to take the job? Is there a potentially no speaker for a while? 
There could be. The rules of governing the House are very interesting here, because on the one hand, you could see someone in the interim. There's also nothing that would prevent McCarthy from tossing his hat back into the ring, even once he was ousted. It just becomes a question of can he get the support he needs. And to be clear, what they're talking about is what concessions will Democrats extract? We, we, you know, coalition governments are not impossible. Nothing's impossible. Speaker House doesn't even be a member of the Speaker of the, of the House of Representatives. Yes, a point you remind us of often. Uh, I, but but <laughs> just, just because reality matters, just, you know, we can, you know, we, we, we're so often constrained. Drained, uh, by, by the fact in Washington people can only yes. think about what you are what father of the reality check. So it's all yes, it does feel like all. John's just trying to urge himself into the role. If I'm going to be completely candid, with you. Um, I, I do want to turn to yeah. uh, Mark Milley. We saw his speech as he departed as chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, last week, where he very implicitly called out the former president as wannabe dictator, I believe. Uh, he also gave an interview with NBC News. I want to play some sound from that. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I've served my country faithfully for four and a half consecutive decades in peace and war, and my family has made enormous sacrifices for this country, and my mother and father before me, and, and grandparents before them. So uh, I'll take a back seat to no one on loyalty to this country, and, and my loyalty is to the Constitution. His public comments, which I think are very reflective of what most people knew where he was privately over the course of the last several years. What do you make of them? Well, it's interesting because that in many ways is kind of a different iteration of what he said in that retirement speech when he talked about how the loyalty needed to be to a constitution and not an unnamed dictator, which we understand to be former President Trump. But it also comes in response to really outright attacks from the former president to the general, saying that he committed treasonous actions, suggesting that that would have been something punishable by death. It is bringing kind of a partisan tilt to the military that really historically has not been there. The idea that the military is supposed to be beholden to whatever uh, leader party is in charge, that's not usually how things work in the United States. No, and yet it's the, the fact it needs to be reminded speaks to the tenor of our times. Look, country over party is constitution over party. That's not a partisan stand, although it may feel that way. I was listening to those comments, and I was also struck by our colleague uh, Jake Tapper's I was uh, just confirmation. Say, yes, Millie saying this out loud, Kelly, mm. the former chief of staff, confirming that to Jake. At so the same time. It's a very big deal. And again, just to, to reiterate, he confirmed reports that not only had Trump had repeatedly disparaged wounded warriors and people who died in the service of their country, but one of the things he said is he described Trump as a person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, and our the rule of law. Mm-hmm. That's Trump's former chief of staff, General John Kelly. Longest serving Trump chief of staff. Yes. So, so th- you know, this is not a partisan critique of Donald Trump. These are people who worked with him and know him well, warning about Donald Trump to Republicans today. Thank you both. Great to have you. Come yeah, back. I will. You're Thank always you. welcome. <laughs> so this is really fascinating. The head of Microsoft, the CEO of Microsoft, takes the stand in this very high-stakes antitrust trial against Google and warns of a, quote, nightmare scenario if Google's dominance over online search is allowed to continue. More on that ahead. And after a five-month hiatus because of the Hollywood writer's strike, Late Night is back. In case you've forgotten, my name is Jimmy. I've been off the air for five months. We've been gone um, so long. We've been gone so long, The Bachelor is now a grandfather. So the head of Microsoft warning of a nightmare scenario for the Internet, for users, if Google's dominance over online search is allowed to continue. He took the stand testifying Monday in the U.S. government's sweeping antitrust lawsuit against the web giant, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said, quote, you get up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you search on Google. Every, 
everybody talks about the open web, but there is really only the Google web. He also warned of the rise of AI and online search, saying that it could cement Google's dominance in the industry, saying, quote, I worry a lot, even in spite of my enthusiasm that there is a new angle with AI, I worry a lot that this vicious cycle I'm trapped in can become even more vicious. Nadella is the most senior tech executive to take the stand during trial, which is focused on the power of Google as a default search engine on many phones and browsers around the world. We did reach out to Google to comment on Satya Nadella's testimony. They did not have a comment. Joining us now, senior media analyst Sarah Fisher. Morning. Two things. Good morning. Obviously, Satya Nadella runs a huge competitor to Google. I just want to put that out there. And it's just notable that Microsoft is the one that faced all of this antitrust scrutiny from the DOJ back when. That was the biggest case, antitrust case of this kind before now. What do you make of what he said and what it will mean for this suit? The big takeaway, Poppy, is that at the time that Microsoft was facing a lawsuit from the DOJ all those years ago, the ecosystem was very different. We were primarily using desktop to access search browsers. In the mobile ecosystem, Satya Nadella is arguing that these partnerships that Google has with vendors like Apple to make sure that it's the default search engine make it very difficult for another competitor to break through. And as a result, he argues that Google is able to collect an unprecedented level of data over its competitors like Microsoft that it will be able to use to train its AI algorithms. Essentially, he's saying, Poppy, if you don't address this antitrust problem now, it's only going to get worse later in the AI era. Sir, you mentioned AI. I want to shift just a little bit because apparently Tom Hanks is not doing advertisements for a dental care company, um, which I guess makes sense. But he had to post this on Instagram, basically saying AI had replicated him. Uh, this has been a huge issue in the strikes and the negotiations between the writers and the actors. It's obviously is a huge issue throughout tech. What can be done to prevent stuff like this? Why isn't there something in place already? It's a great question, Phil. Mostly it's a technology problem at this point. We actually do have a regulatory body that's responsible for what we call false commercialization or a company that is portending to be something that it's not or using falsehoods to market its products. This is a big problem, by the way, with things like diet and weight loss pills. The problem is the FTC is not fully equipped to be able to tackle every single AI-generated ad and image. Now, the tech platforms have gotten pretty good. If you think about Meta, Google, identifying when somebody is using AI to doctor a famous person. Where it's going to become more challenging, Phil, is when regular everyday people mm -hmm. who upload their own photos to social media have their own videos and photos be used to doctor AI. You know, we don't have extensive levels of lawyers and the reach of social media to debunk this stuff. That's where I think the real concern is. We couldn't let you go without playing a little bit of late night from last night. Here it is. <laughs> It feels good to be back. It feels good to be with all of you again here in the Ed Sullivan Theater because after the first few months of the strike, Evie refused to keep chanting my name. I'm more, I'm more excited than a Jets fan during the first three plays of the season. You've got to be kidding me. I miss my writers so much. I was... So happy, so happy uh, to see them uh, this morning. I will admit by lunch, I was a little over it. <laughs> so they're back. 
They're back. And I think so many people are happy to see them. The next thing, of course, though, Poppy, is we're waiting for our scripted series to be back. And that's going to come when we get a deal between the Hollywood studios and the actors. They are resuming negotiations today. And hopefully we get those shows back soon. Okay, Sarah, thank you so much for the reporting on all three of those friends. Thank you. Well, the governor of Illinois and mayor of Chicago, both Democrats, confronting the White House on its handling of the migrant crisis, why they say the administration's response has been, quote, untenable. And former President Trump says he will be back in court today. Trump's defense lawyer from his second impeachment trial joins us next. Stay with us. So former President Trump says he'll be back in court today after spending the first day of his $250 million civil fraud trial really going after the judge and New York's attorney general. Listen. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundredth, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show who ran on the basis that she was going to get Trump before she even knew anything about me. Attorney General Letitia James accuses Trump of inflating the value of his assets in order to get better terms for insurance and bank loans. The judge has already determined that Trump is liable for fraud and is now set to determine punishments and financial penalties. The AG is also trying to prove six additional claims that prosecutors have brought, including falsifying business records and insurance fraud. Yesterday, this was interesting in court, the prosecutors played testimony from Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, explaining how he and others inflated Trump's assets to match the former president's wishes, according to him. Listen. So Mr. Trump would call Alan and I into the office and let's say it said he was worth $6 billion. Well, he wanted to be higher on the Forbes list. And he then said, I'm actually not worth $6 billion. I'm worth seven. In fact, I think it's actually now worth eight with everything that's going on. Alan and I were tasked with taking the assets, increasing each of those asset classes in order to accommodate that $8 billion number. Joining us now, Trump's defense lawyer during his second impeachment trial, David Schoen. David, it's always good to have you on these fascinating legal cases. Let me start with the valuation question, because that's really the crux here of, of, the, of the argument and, and, and the attorney general's case. One of Trump's attorneys, Alina Haba, said this in court, quote, the value is what someone is willing to pay. The Trump properties are Mona Lisa properties. This is not fraud. That is real estate. What is your response to that? Well, I think her point is that in real estate, you know, valuations do depend on, uh, you know, ready, willing and able buyer. Um, and often real estate values are inflated based on, for example, in this case, I think what she's saying is the brand, the Trump brand. But by 25 of the times, properties, that sort of thing. I think that you're going to see in this case experts testifying um, and to that effect, frankly, you know, uh, President Trump's example is the Mar-a-Lago, which he says the judge said was valued at $18 million, and he thinks that that's really just a fraction of it. I think most people would say certainly that $18 million is only a fraction of what that property is worth, but there's a dispute as to whether the judge really said that or not. Yeah, I think, look, Trump valued it at over $400 million. Alina Hobbes said at one point yesterday a billion. So the question is, at how many times is it believable? Um, what's interesting to me is that you also have a real argument now about whether this could have been a jury trial. 
This is a judge deciding it. It's a bench trial. Here is Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, trying to explain her position on this. And then I want your legal take. Here she is. I have to address this one common uh, misconception in the press. And unfortunately, uh, it just keeps getting repeated, which is that we had this great option to have a box checked for a jury. No, we didn't have that. That's not how this works. They brought it under Section 6312, which is a very narrow, not appropriately used section of the law, which is for consumer protections, not this. And that is why we're sitting here in front of a judge. But isn't she missing the point that when you look at civil practice law and rules, Section 4102, it says that a defendant has to request a jury trial within 15 days of the complaint? Was this a mistake, an error by Trump's legal team? It's a very interesting issue. The judge yesterday apparently said that uh, there's no jury trial because no one asked him for one. So they're both sort of right. Um, mm. I personally, uh, if you're asking my personal professional opinion, would have filed a demand for a jury, uh, a jury trial under Section 4102. However, there is a case from 2011, People versus First American Corporation, in which a judge from the same court said there is no right to a jury trial under New York Executive Law 6312, the action, uh, the section under which this is brought, because they said the remedies are generally equitable, not money damages. And historically, there hasn't been a right to a jury trial for equitable uh, damage. That is taking away the business license and that sort of thing. But I would have filed a jury demand to litigate the issue uh, because here there are very severe monetary uh, punishments b at issue potentially. And I think there's a strong argument to be made for the right to a jury trial. As I understand it, you've been in touch with Trump's legal team. It seems like at the end of the day yesterday, they may have had something of a boon in terms of testimony from a witness about documents from 2011 when nothing prior to 2014 uh, is, is germane to this case. What are they telling you they think their strongest point is right now? Well, I haven't actually been in touch with Trump's legal team. Um, Someone, let's say, more centered to the uh, discussion than Trump? that. Trump? But um, without going into any... David? Uh, well, without going into any... David? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Trump? Listen, I, I, I have a uh, close relationship with former President Trump, so I certainly have spoken with him. Um, but I wouldn't go into any, any details of any discussions that I've had with him. I would say this, though. The response to what happened yesterday, I think, by the legal team, is that... Uh, you know, they were heartened that the judge recognized the court of appeal, the appellate division's decision that um, the issues in this case are limited to events that happened after July 2014 mm -hmm. as to those who signed a so-called tolling agreement. Um, you know, Ivanka got out of the case because she wasn't a party to mm -hmm. that agreement. But uh, so and they heard testimony yesterday from 2011. And so the judge made the comment that uh, he hopes that the, the prosecution or the attorney general will tie yeah. that into the uh, events that happened after 2014. Yeah. Interesting, which the, which the prosecutors may do today in court as they continue. I do want to play uh, some of the criticism from Trump himself has been particularly on comments made by the New York Attorney General Letitia James while she was running. Here are a few things she said then in 2018 about Trump. I will never be afraid to challenge this illegitimate president. He should be charged with obstructing justice. I believe that the president of these United States can be indicted for criminal offenses. I will be shining a bright light into every dark corner of his real estate dealings. And, uh, 
in every dealing, demanding truthfulness at every turn. Would those comments have any legal basis for a dismissal here? I don't know about a dismissal. I'm very, very troubled by them. Um, I think they're completely unethical. I think it's, uh, I actually have spoken with a fellow who's written a book on prosecutorial misconduct, and he's assured me he's going to include a chapter next time on the kinds of statements that are appropriate ethically and inappropriate ethically in the course of an election campaign for elected officials, for judges and prosecutors. I think they're very troubling comments. Um, we, the government is held to a different standard. And uh, the public generally believes that when they say something that it's accurate. We can't have people targeting particular citizens mm -hmm. when they're running for office, especially when there's been no investigation or, and certainly no finding yet at that time of any uh, culpability. I think they're very troubling. This is part of what I think is driving the polls in addition to policy issues. I think that fundamentally American people demand fairness and they don't want to see people targeted, even if they're you know, sort of larger than life figures like Donald Trump. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's troubling. David, thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure we'll have much more to talk about after the day in court. And if you speak with the former president, um, do, do come back and join us. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, David. Thank you. Bill. Yeah, I, I think he speaks with the former president. I've seen an exclusive. John Kelly, on the record to confirm several disturbing stories about his former boss, Donald Trump. Jake Tapper joins us with that reporting ahead. And in a political twist, Kevin McCarthy's future as House Speaker may lie in the hands of Democrats. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Governor of Illinois and the mayor of Chicago, both Democrats, are confronting the White House on its handling of the migrant crisis, laying out their concerns and demanding the administration take action. Governor J.B. Pritzker is asking President Biden and name Azar to manage the ongoing crisis. It comes from reporting from CNN senior reporter Isaac DeVere joins us now. I'm, I'm fascinated by this story because this is the type of stuff, particularly supporters like Pritzker, don't want in the public sphere. But the governor calling the situation untenable. What else are you learning uh, about these conversations? Yeah, that's right, Phil. Look, what we know is it's not just those pictures at the border of people coming over. It's where they're going. Situation in New York has gotten a lot of headlines, but in, New in Chicago, they're at already 15,000 migrants that are there, and they're expecting that that number could, within weeks, jump to 30,000 migrants. Uh, some intelligence that they feel like they've gathered that says that Texas Governor Greg Abbott seems like he'll be sending even more buses of migrants to Chicago. There are already uh, up to 3,000 people sleeping on the floors of police stations in Chicago and at the airport there. Uh, and what they're looking at is saying to the White House in a combative phone call that happened on Sunday night and in a letter that Governor Pritzker uh, sent to the president on Monday saying they need more help. And they're asking, as you said, for some kind of uh, coordinated response to be the person in the federal government or have the federal government be the uh, actor who is deciding where these migrants go, not just leaving it up to the governor of Texas or NGOs or other people sent around and asking for more help with the money to pay for it. 
It's so interesting, Isaac. This is great reporting, by the way. But to see this out of Chicago and Illinois, to, to following what the mayor of New York has been saying for a long time now, but a growing call from Democrats, key Democrats in key states for, for this White House. Isaac, thanks very much. Thank you. All right, CNN This Morning continues right now. Republican Congressman Matt Gates launching his attempt to oust Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy won't be the speaker or he'll be working at the pleasure of the Democrats. This has never been successfully executed before in American history. That nine-year-old girl who went missing during a family camping trip has been found alive. The suspect left a note at the home of the young girl's parents. Leaving a critical piece of evidence behind his own fingerprint. For a parent whose child goes missing, this is like getting your whole life back again. Former President Donald J. Trump appearing by choice in a New York courtroom. Trump's choice to show up was as personal as it was political. He's watching as his company is in a death spiral. Morning, everyone. So glad you're with us. There is a lot going on. It's so interesting that just a few miles from here, Trump's going to go, instead of being elsewhere on the campaign trail, he's going to be here campaigning from the courtroom. I think that's the biggest thing. The the legal and the political, they've converged over and over again. And clearly, and I think as Caitlin Collins was reporting last night, sees this as a political moment in the courtroom. For sure. Um, Plenty going on here. Plenty going on down in Washington as well, where Kevin McCarthy is dealing with his own set of struggles. A vote to decide the fate of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy could happen as soon as today. And it looks like almost assuredly he will need Democrats to help save his job from a conservative Republican revolt. Now, overnight, Congressman Matt Gaetz made his move and triggered a historic vote to potentially oust McCarthy. It's the first time this has happened in over a century. Well, I have enough Republicans where at this point next week, one of two things will happen. Kevin McCarthy won't be the Speaker of the House or he'll be the Speaker of the House working at the pleasure of the Democrats. And I'm at peace with either result because the American people deserve to know who governs them. Pivotal day ahead on Capitol Hill before the vote happens. Sources say McCarthy will try to have the measure killed. And this morning, House Democrats are getting ready to meet as they decide whether to help keep him in power. McCarthy can only afford to lose four Republican votes. Five have already said that they would vote to get rid of McCarthy. That means he needs the support of Democrats to stay in power. And there is at least 13, there are at least 13 Republicans who are undecided, but open to voting McCarthy out. Let's bring in our congressional correspondent, Lauren Fox, who's fantastic at math, (laughs) sorting out all those numbers for us. The clear thing is he needs Democrats. Yeah, he absolutely needs Democrats at this point. And that's why we're sort of in this uncharted territory. Democrats are going to huddle behind closed doors around 9 a.m. this morning on Capitol Hill. Their leadership telling them this could be an extended uh, caucus meeting, an opportunity to have a conversation among members. And there's a diversity of opinion about where Democrats should go in this moment. You hear from some Republican allies of McCarthy that if Democrats care about this institution, that they will just vote to move on with this uh, resolution, but you hear from a lot of Democrats that they're not going to be a cheap date on this, that they believe that they could get major extractions from the Speaker, from Republicans, if they were to help him. And there are many Democrats who don't even want to lift a finger to do that, arguing that this is a mess of McCarthy's own making, that he's the one who allowed this rules package, that any one single member could bring up this resolution to try and oust him. And that is exactly 
the moment that they have found themselves in. That is what many Democrats are saying. So right now, something to keep in mind is the reality that the Republican conference is also divided on what should happen. They're going to be meeting behind closed doors as well, not too far away from where the Democrats are meeting. Also, you have some hardliners who aren't big fans of Kevin McCarthy, but are also weighing if this is the right moment to try and oust him. I talked to Representative Ralph Norman last night. He's a conservative. He's in the House Freedom Caucus, also serves on the Rules Committee. He said that he's concerned that if they go forward with this, the implication could be that they would not get to one year spending bills, bills that have been promised by the Republican leadership, and that in 45 days, they could find themselves in another shutdown showdown, given the fact that they will have spent so much time dealing with this on the floor. Because remember, if McCarthy is ousted, you have a situation where who is the speaker and who would actually have the 218 votes to rise and become the next speaker? That is something that a lot of hardliners, even people who want to oust Kevin McCarthy, cannot answer right now. Poppy? Warren Fox, shut down, showdown. Say that five times fast. Let's hope we don't get there again. Thank you. Well, this morning, a nine-year-old girl is back in the arms of her loved ones after vanishing from a New York state park over the weekend. Charlotte Senna's disappearance triggered a multi-day search that grew to include 400 people. Police say the major break in the case was a ransom note left in her parents' mailbox. Now, a suspect, 47-year-old Craig Nelson Ross, is in custody. Seen as Gene Casares joins us live. Uh, Gene, uh, the pressure as the kind of the clock continued to tick, mounting the breakthrough, though, it's a remarkable story. Absolutely remarkable. You know, Charlotte and her family, they were camping just up the road here. It was Saturday. Uh, she was riding her bicycle with her friend. She wanted to make one more loop around. Her, her family said she could. She never returned. At 6.15 Saturday evening, she was missing. Law enforcement immediately began to converge. They were going to search for her. They did search for her, but they also stood guard at the family's home. At 4.20 yesterday morning, a man came to the family's home, deposited a letter in the mailbox. That turned out to be a ransom note. They needed a fingerprint. They worked all day to try to get a hit, and they did. At 2.15 yesterday afternoon, a 1999 DWI uh, arrest by uh, Craig Ross, Jr., that led them to a residence where he lived behind his mother's house in a trailer, the SWAT team converged and stormed into that trailer at 6.30 last night. They got him in custody. Charlotte was found in a cabinet. She was taken to a hospital in Albany for safety precautions. She's been reunited with her family, the governor says. Now we are waiting, shortly we believe, criminal charges to be found, filed. Phil? All right, Gene Casares, please keep us posted. Fascinating, fascinating reporting. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN chief law enforcement uh, and intelligence analyst. John, this is what we were all praying for and hoping for. But the fact that they found her really quickly, it says a lot. It does. It says they rushed into this literally with every possible resource they could bring in terms of technology, investigators, help from the FBI, uh, everything that they could bring to bear because they know there's a clock ticking on cases like this where the longer they go on, especially in the first two days, the worse the outcome could be. The ransom notes seem to be kind of the big yeah. 
break. But the governor was talking about multiple different elements that kind of led them to this point. What else was at play here? What else were they looking at? Well, so that's what we're going to learn a little bit more about today, because we have to start with, you know, that ransom note um, and some things the state police said on the first day, which is we're looking at this as a targeted kidnapping, meaning who is uh, Craig Ross, 47 years old, record for minor arrests, not a master criminal. Why Charlotte? Why that park? Why that time? Why this family? And the answer may be he was just waiting for the right moment and the right opportunity with a child who was by herself, not with a group of other children, a lack of witnesses. Or the answer could be um, based on the early hint we got from police that this might be targeted, uh, that there's a connection to that family. So they've got to peel back, not just with, with, the, uh, with Charlotte's family, but also through the suspect's information. Was there any connection? Did they ever work together? It was po- is it possible they knew each other? And I think we'll learn whether or not that was the case, you know, later today when they have their other press conference. Uh, the governor identified him as 47-year-old Craig Nelson Ross Jr. We heard from Gene. Do we know anything about his history? He appears to have an aggravated harassment arrest. He has a, a driving while under the influence arrest in Saratoga. Um, these are old arrests, though. But strangely, Poppy, in that way, he fits the profile of a child abductor. You know, uh, 30-something percent of them have no criminal record, which actually makes them harder to trace. And the 40-something-odd percent that do, uh, these are generally not other kidnappings and, you know, sexual assaults of children. It's generally a mixed bag of minor offenses. They have a real diversity in criminal background. In this case, you know, you talk about luck. His criminal background was a stroke of luck because when they got that ransom note and they ran that print and they had to do it twice because the first one didn't catch, um, that's what in the APHIS system, the automated fingerprint information Mm. system for New York State that runs all those prints, a latent that you come that may just be a partial and matches it to a person, that's the record that clicked. How often do we see ransom note type cases in child abduction? I feel like you see them all the time in the movies. Uh, yeah, you don't right. see a lot of these stories, in, at least publicly, from a law enforcement perspective. Is so, this regular? That's a really interesting question because you don't see a lot of that. I mean, when you look at child abductions by child predators who are usually child sexual predators, you know, that mean age is mostly female, almost 100%, and the average age is 11 years old. So with a nine-year-old girl, in this case, we're in that ballpark. Kidnap for ransom is not for sexual predators. The money is the, the money is the motive, and that's a different kind of criminal, and that's a, a different kind of kidnapping. I ran a lot of kidnappings, particularly in Los Angeles. And, you know, the ransom drop was always the opportunity and the worst moment of the case because you had to decide, do we do, the, do we do the ransom drop and let the person go and attempt to follow them? Maybe it'll lead us back to the victim. But if you give them enough room so that they don't detect the tail and you lose them, you lose the money, you lose the suspect, you lose your trail to the victim. So you had to make a real decision there whether to jump in. In this case, they were able to get ahead of that by a clue left on the note. And, and bring Charlotte Senna home. Um, Thank Thanks so much, John. Thank Appreciate you. it.
Well, former President Trump says he'll be back in court today, and in just a few hours, the president's son, Hunter Biden, will also be walking into a courtroom for his arraignment on three felony gun charges. And calls grow for San Francisco to ban driverless vehicles after a woman was seriously injured in an accident involving one overnight. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. In just under three hours, President Biden's son, Hunter, will be in a Delaware courtroom for an arraignment on three felony gun charges. He's accused of lying after he said he wasn't addicted to drugs when he bought a firearm in 2018. He's expected to plead not guilty. CNN's Evan Perez is live outside the federal courthouse in Wilmington. Uh, Evan, the plea deal fell apart dramatically. There's a, a special counsel investigation. There's this. Walk through where we are right now. Well, Phil, the, the president's son is going to walk into this courthouse uh, in just a couple of hours. You can see uh, people standing in line right there behind me uh, to get a, a seat into, inside the courtroom. Look, this is a something that's never happened, right? The, the son of the president is going to come in here. He's going to uh, plead not guilty to these three counts. Uh, and then he's going to be processed by the federal uh, officers inside the courthouse there and then probably released on his own recognizance. He's facing these three counts. Uh, as a result of the fact that you, this uh, plea deal that was uh, that was hammered out and was supposed to uh, get uh, ironed out in July, late July, just fell apart, fell apart spectacularly right before the judge. When the judge asked some simple questions about exactly what this plea deal covered, now that was a diversion agreement under which uh, for 24 months uh, Hunter Biden just had to abide by not using drugs, not buying any firearms. And then this would have been over with. Now he's facing these three counts related to when he bought a firearm back in 2018. He owned it for about uh, just, a, just a few days. And according to the, uh, the indictment, he lied on the form that you fill out when you buy that firearm. He was addicted to drugs. He has written about this uh, fact that he's addicted. He was addicted to drugs at the time. And as a result, federal, uh, the, the, the federal law says that was a federal violation. Now, uh, we anticipate that this is not the the it's not it's not over after this uh, because we know the special counsel is still investigating Hunter Biden uh, over his taxes. Uh, it is possible that they are going to bring charges in either Washington or Southern California where he lives. So this might just be the beginning of what we'll see with Hunter Biden and the special counsel as a result of this investigation that's been going on. Phil, for five years. Yeah, a historic first for the child of a president uh, with many more potential steps to come. Evan Perez outside the courthouse in Delaware. Thank you. This morning, day two of that $250 million civil fraud trial against Donald Trump gets underway, and Trump has wasted no time going after the judge in the case. Listen. It's a judge that should be disbarred. This is a judge that should be out of office. This is a judge that some people say could be charged criminally for what he's doing. He's interfering with an election, and it's a disgrace. Not sure what the basis, in fact, for those allegations are, but joining us now, retired U.S. District Judge in the Southern District of New York, Shira Shenlin. Judge, it's very good to have you. Appreciate your time. Um, there's that, right? And he's also gone after the Attorney General. I want to go to the substance of what happened in the courtroom yesterday. The testimony we heard and the basis for the prosecutor's arguments here. What is your assessment? Well, yesterday we heard an accountant who had worked with Mazers, and he was testifying about transactions that occurred in 2011. So there was a question there because the statute of limitations says 
were not interested in anything until 2014. But what's at issue here is not the transaction, but the actual false statement about it. So the false statement is made in 2014, even though it's about an event that occurred in 2011. So it actually made sense for the attorney general to put in that evidence because the background of the statement is the transaction, but it's the statement that's at issue. The judge did question, though, is the AG going to take this argument further? The Trump, Trump legal team thinks that that's a strong point for them. I don't think it's a strong point for them. I think the judge said, I hope this won't go on forever. I don't want to hear much more of this. I've already said what the statute is. I understand that. But she has to prove her case. And to prove her case, she has to first give the background of the transaction and then the false statement about the transaction. And the statement was made after 2014. One of the defenses we heard from Trump's attorneys yesterday aligned with what we'd heard leading up to this moment, which was, this is how everybody does it. This is just kind of the way things work, which you can put that aside for a second. Alina Habba defended the valuation saying, this value is what someone is willing to pay. The Trump properties are Mona Lisa properties. This is not fraud. This is, that is real estate. Look, I understand it's a market, right? Whatever the person is willing to pay sets the market. But that defense in this specific case, does it have validity? No, it has no validity because it's speculative. A willing buyer is someone who's making an offer or about to make an offer or has discussed an offer. It's not what's in the mind of Ms. Haba or, or former President Trump. They might believe that a buyer will turn up who will pay hundreds of millions, but they have no evidence but, of that. So you can't just speculate. But then can I ask you what, because this is an issue that we had David Schoen on last hour who represented Trump in one of his impeachment trials. And his point is that to your argument, if you flip it, the judge didn't have a basis for an $18 million valuation or the AG didn't have a basis for an $18 million valuation on Mar-a-Lago. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes and no. I read uh, the judge's opinion on the summary judgment. Yeah. And there were actual valuations that were made on most of these properties. There were documents uh, by appraisers, uh, by accountants. There were, there were documents that gave numbers for all these things. Right. And that so 18 like, million was from the Palm Beach County. Assessor. Exactly. I think so their argument is it's before yeah. he was president and now things would be worth more if you have a president's property. I'm sure I don't know about 500 million. Well, that's right. I'm sure they'd be worth more, but not 2,300% more, which is one of the percentages in this, in this charge. Can I ask about the attacks, both going into the courtroom, coming sure. out of the, sure. the courtroom? Um, to some degree, maybe we're all numb to it from the former president at this point, but in your experience, um, as you watch that happen, what comes to mind? It comes to mind that this person has a habit, and has always had a habit, of attacking judges. He had that habit before he was elected president, while he was president, and after he's been president. That's his M.O. to say, this judge can't be fair, this judge is of you know, Indian descent, this judge is a racist, this judge is a Democrat. He, he finds something to say about every judge unless it's a judge that he knows or feels is on his side because he appointed that judge. So then he says, that's a wonderful judge. So when Eileen Cannon got one of his cases, he said, she's a great judge. Of course, she'd been a judge less than two years at that point. He had no idea if she was a great judge, but that's his MO. I'd be remiss to let you go without asking about Hunter Biden today. Um, the fact that his attorney, Abby Lowell, said, let him judge appear in court in Delaware by video conference, because he's in California, I think it's notable that they came back and said, 
The prosecutors came back and said, no, he's got to be in court, and the judge ruled that way so that, it, so that he is treated like other defendants would be treated. What do you say? I think that's why the judge did it, so it would not look like favoritism. It wouldn't look special. However, if it was anybody else, sort of an average person whose name we never heard of, the judge might have allowed a remote hearing. So I think that there's a bend-over-backward effect. For example, these three so-called felony charges, I shouldn't say so-called, they are felony they are. charges. Yes, they're, they're felony charges, but they're almost always reduced to a misdemeanor. They're almost always have no jail time. They're almost always end up in a diversion program for first offenders. And he is a first offenders offender. But here, it's really important to look like he's not being treated any better than anyone else. What that turns into is he may be being treated slightly worse than anybody else. But it's an effort to look fair. Judge Shearshanlin, thank you very much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks. Well, Texas Congressman Henry Cuellar carjacked in D.C. at gunpoint. We're going to bring you the details next. I'm breaking this morning. At least three people have been killed in a shooting at a mall in Thailand. We do have those breaking details ahead. Well, breaking news this morning, at least three people have been killed and four others have been injured during a shooting at a mall in Bangkok, Thailand. The shooting took place around 5 p.m. local time. Police have arrested a 14-year-old suspect who was found with a weapon. Authorities are still in the process of counting the total number of fatalities. We'll keep you posted on that. Oh, overnight, Congressman Henry Cuellar carjacked at gunpoint about a mile away from the Capitol in Washington, D.C. Police located the car, but they're still trying to track down three suspects, or Gabe Cohen joins us live with much more on this reporting. It is frightening, and it happened in, what, about 9 p.m. last night? Is he okay? Yeah, Poppy, that's the good news. Uh, we understand that Representative Henry Cuellar is okay. And you're right, this happened right around 9.30 last night in this busy, high-end part of Washington, Navy Yard, a neighborhood, as you can see behind me, less than one mile away from the U.S. Capitol, just right down this street, about a quarter mile in the other direction, Nationals Park, the baseball stadium. This is a neighborhood where congressional leaders live, young professionals live. There are bars, restaurants, and so there would have been plenty of people still out and about uh, last night around 9.30 when Representative Cuellar was carjacked while parking right by this intersection. We did get a statement in uh, from his chief of staff saying, as Congressman Cuellar was parking his car this evening, three armed assailants approached the congressman and stole his vehicle. Luckily, he was not harmed and is working with local law enforcement. Thank you to Metro PD and Capitol Police for their swift action and for recovering the congressman's vehicle. They did recover that Honda, although uh, those three armed assailants did make off with the congressman's uh, phone, iPad, uh, even his dinner. And so there's a lot of concern right now for about safety here in this area for locals and, of course, for the leaders on Capitol Hill who represent constituents all over the country. I want to show you there is an increased police presence uh, this morning. We've seen at least one police cruiser on this corner uh, since we have been here for several hours. Now, look, this is an area where we would expect to see increased patrols because of not just the amount of people that live here, but also the proximity 
uh, to Capitol Hill, Poppy. But look, bear in mind, it's been about um, eight months since Representative Angie Craig, a Democrat from Minnesota, was attacked at her D.C. apartment uh, just across town. So there have been a lot of people talking about the increase in violent crime in the district, including motor vehicle thefts, uh, which have close to doubled since this time last year compared to this time last year, Poppy. So a lot of concern about those numbers at this point. Of course. We're glad he's okay, but terrifying for it to have happened. Gabe, thank you for the reporting from Washington. Phil. Well, this morning, a woman is in the hospital after suffering critical injuries after she was hit by a driverless car in downtown San Francisco last night. Now, according to the fire department, she has multiple life-threatening injuries. There's a number of different concerns when we have motor vehicles at intersections, high-speed intersections, pedestrians, lighting, nighttime. There's a lot of different factors that can come together to cause injuries. Now, the car, which was operated by the self-driving car company Cruise, had no driver nor passenger to witness the accident, but the car has its own cameras that help in the investigation. Well, a break from tradition for the Catholic Church this morning. Pope Francis suggesting for the first time that people in same-sex unions could be blessed by Catholic priests on a case-by-case basis. The announcement is a reversal from 2,000 years of tradition and from his statement in March that the church could not bless same-sex unions because they couldn't, quote, not bless sin. This also comes after the Pope received a letter from a group of cardinals asking him for clarity on the issue in response The Pope reiterated that the church only recognizes marriage as a union between a man and a woman. But he says, quote, we cannot be judges who only deny, reject and exclude. Well, CNN exclusive John Kelly, the former chief of staff to President, former President Trump, going on the record to confirm several disturbing stories about his former boss. Jake Tapper joins us live with this reporting next. Now to a CNN exclusive, former Trump White House Chief of Staff John Kelly setting the record straight on the record, confirming a number of damning statements made by former President Trump. Our colleague Jake Tapper has it all in this report. Hi, Donald John Trump. No other president has had so many former top aides making such harsh public assessments. Most recently, Cassidy Hutchinson. I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we will face to our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history. She joins a growing chorus. I think he's unfit for office. He will always put his own interests and gratifying his own ego ahead of everything else. Thank Thank you very much. And today, Trump's longest serving former chief of staff, John Kelly, is chiming in with his harshest criticism yet. In an exclusive statement to CNN, Kelly says about Trump, What can I add that has not already been said? Calling President Trump, quote, a person that has no idea what America stands for and has no idea what America is all about. For the first time ever, Kelly sets the record straight with on-the-record confirmation of a number of damning details about Donald Trump from background sources, including from a 2020 Atlantic story reported with unnamed sources by editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg including the stunning detail that Trump turned to Kelly on Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery in 2017 and asked, I don't get it. What was in it for them? This is Kelly confirming on the record stories of Trump insulting Senator John McCain and former President George H.W. Bush because in Vietnam and in World War II, respectively, the former aviators were shot down. Kelly describes Trump as, quote, 
a person that thinks those who defend their country in uniform or are shot down or seriously wounded in combat or spend years being tortured as POWs are all, quote, suckers because, quote, there is nothing in it for them. A person that did not want to be seen in the presence of military amputees because, quote, it doesn't look good for me. A person that demonstrated open contempt for a Gold Star family, for all Gold Star families, on TV during the 2016 campaign. And rants that our most precious heroes, who gave their lives in America's defense, are, quote, losers and wouldn't visit their graves in France. Kelly confirming on the record a story reported in the book The Divider, where Trump tells Kelly he wants a military parade, like one he saw for Bastille Day in France, except he does not want any wounded veterans. Kelly confirming that Trump in 2018 in France refused to visit graves of Americans killed in World War I. To CNN, Kelly calls Trump a hypocrite, saying he is, quote, not truthful regarding his position on the protection of unborn life, on women, on minorities, on evangelical Christians, on Jews, on working men and women. And he concludes Trump is, quote, a person that has nothing but contempt for our democratic institutions, our constitution, and the rule of law. He concludes, there is nothing more that can be said. God help us. He's doing a great job as chief of staff. A stunning repudiation by a man who worked side by side with Trump longer than any other of Trump's many chiefs of staff. Kelly also criticized Trump for saying that former Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley should be executed. In a departure speech on Friday, Milley responded. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. Some of the people who know Donald Trump the best now warning of the threat they think he poses if elected in November 2024. Jake Tapper joins us now. It is notable, I think, that you got this reporting in the same you know, span of days that Millie made those comments. Jake, I wonder what the Trump team, what Trump himself is saying about it. Well, we reached out uh, to the Trump campaign um, before our report. We said that a former senior administration official was going on the record with us to confirm uh, several of the details of Trump disparaging veterans uh, and those who were killed in action, uh, as mentioned in that 2020 uh, story by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic magazine. And the Trump campaign's response was to immediately disparage uh, former uh, General Mark Milley, the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, even though we had not mentioned uh, Mark Milley's name. And in fact, Mark Milley played no role uh, mm-hmm. in the story at all, but they went after his character and his credibility. Uh, they, after, they also uh, attacked me uh, and said that I should stop peddling fake news from uh, shady sources. Obviously, this is very real news uh, from a, an impeccable source. Um, but anyway, that was, that was their response. Okay. Jake, the significance of this in, in normal times, a, a, a former chief of staff coming out saying these things on the record is dramatic. In this past administration, so many people have come out and said so many things and confirmed lots of stuff. But this was different. John Kelly was different. Why? 
I think what was the final straw for Kelly, and I've been talking to Kelly, I've known Kelly for a long time, since before even he was um, the, the Department of Homeland Security Secretary. Um, and um, I think what, I'm, 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 a, I'm assuming here, I'm, I'm interpreting, this is not a, a statement of fact, but I think, if I may speculate, I think the statement about executing Mark Milley might have been just the final straw for him. He's, he's really been very upset about what Trump has been saying, Trump is, you know, the disparaging of Gold Star families, the disparaging of wounded veterans, the disparaging of soldiers who gave their lives in uh, World War One, has been very upsetting uh, for him uh, for years and years and years. But I think I think the comments uh, about Mark Milley, uh, who served his country honorably for 40 years, the threatening to execute him. And then in, in Kelly's view, um, he, he thinks that Trump saying that publicly is basically a call to arms, a, a hope that one of Trump's followers will then take action against General Milley. Uh, and I think that probably is what pushed him over the edge to, to finally come forward and give this blistering commentary about what he thinks about Trump. And, and when you read the comments, I mean, these are the comments of a, a patriot, of a soldier, of a Marine, uh, the comments of a conservative Republican. Um, th this is not him outflanking Trump on the left, um, but he is very, very disappointed. And then we heard uh, General Milley speak out again last night, Jake, on NBC with Lester Holt. Let's just play part of that interview. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I've served my country faithfully for four and a half consecutive decades in peace and war. And my family has made enormous sacrifices for this country, and my mother and father before me, and, and grandparents before them. So uh, I'll take a back seat to no one on loyalty to this country, and, and my loyalty is to the Constitution. Your, your thoughts on that, Jake, in this moment? I mean, what's so crazy about this is this is all based on Milley before the 2020 election in a phone call that was approved by the Trump administration calling the Chinese because he'd received intelligence that China had gotten faulty intelligence uh, that Trump was going to attack China and base and doing basic deconfliction, making sure that China didn't mistakenly think uh, that Trump was going to attack China, which, uh, you know, all reporting suggests that he was not. Um, and this was approved by the acting secretary of defense. And there really is nothing particularly controversial about this. This was just making sure that there were no misunderstandings. Um, but for some reason, and this also, by the way, uh, this was reported in Jeffrey Goldberg's latest piece in The Atlantic, his profile of General Milley called The Patriot. But this also was approved in a, in a book last year by Bob Woodward and, and Bob Costa. Um, I don't particularly understand why this would prompt Donald Trump to call for his execution and accuse him of treason when there's literally nothing treasonous about this, um, except for the fact that this is just another outrageous statement by Donald Trump um, and another comment disparaging uh, somebody who, who has served his country for four decades, uh, somebody who was chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff because Donald Trump appointed him to that role uh, and who kept the country you know, and the, kept the ship of state uh, sailing smoothly. I mean, there is nothing treasonous about making sure that we don't get involved in a war based on a misunderstanding by China. I, so I, I still fully don't understand what exactly is the offense that, that allegedly took place here, given the fact that 
Donald Trump had not intended to attack China. And this was a call that was approved by the acting secretary of defense. None of it makes any sense. But again, that's kind of par for the course when it comes to this particular presidential candidate. And you make a key point both with John Kelly and with General Milley and pretty much everybody else who's spoken out from inside the administration. Um, Trump picked them. He selected them. Jake, this is really important reporting. Thanks for coming on this morning. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And with us now, CNN political commentator and former White House communications director, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and former aide to Trump White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, Cassidy Hutchinson. Her new book, Enough, details the chaos and lawlessness at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, Alyssa, we were talking about this. I want to start with you, because the the Jeff Goldberg Atlantic story uh, at the time in 2020 that mentioned some of the the stuff related to the veterans, uh, you were quoted in that story as a White House spokesperson saying this report is false. President Trump holds the military in the highest regard. He demonstrated his commitment to them at every turn. Take people inside that. So I remember when the story came out, it was, you know, it hit like a lightning rod in the West Wing. Uh, The former president was very upset about it. And I spent the morning or afternoon um, running around talking to my counterparts at DOD, the National Security Council, and internally at the White House for people who would have been on that trip um, in France that was specifically alluded to, because I was not working with Trump then, to get somebody to either corroborate what was said or to say that didn't happen. Ultimately, I took the former president's word, which, of course, I would never say that I would not disparage the military and went on the record with that. I really applaud General Kelly for coming forward and saying this so definitively now. I think something that something myself and others deal with is what's the timing that people choose to come forward? I'm someone who's guilty of could I have spoken out and said things sooner? Could I have made that more clear? But what matters is this. General Milley, who I worked for at the Department of Defense, General John Kelly, General Mattis have all spoken to the unfitness of Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And that has to break through. These are the senior most military leaders in the country saying he doesn't understand the Constitution and the role of the military and also just the duty to the Constitution over any individual man. And Cassidy, I'm glad you're here and welcome to the table with us. You also write in your book, and you've said in in your interview with Jake, which was really illuminating, and with with Caitlin last night, you believe Donald Trump is a grave danger to to the country. You were on the plane with him at the time that the Atlantic story that Alyssa was just referencing. Sort of working yes. tandem on this with it. Right. You're in the air and you're you're you talk about Trump in your book as being visibly distraught and you write it was a side of the president most Americans never have an opportunity to see, sympathetic, concerned, apprehensive. It's a side he keeps disguised for fear, I suspect, of appearing weak. He also insisted to you none of this was true. Right. Do you, did you know when he was telling the truth or not? You know, sometimes it was easier to discern than other times, but like Alyssa said, this time we took the word, we took his word for it. But with that said, too, disparaging the military is sort of the one of the easiest issues for him to avoid. They're easily the most respectable group of Americans. They're the Americans that are willing to lay their life down for this country. I'm going to take the word of military members like General Kelly or like Battis or like Millie. or like Millie who are coming out saying this because they're the ones that are willing to lay their life down for the country when Donald Trump has proven time and time again that he has no respect for our institutions and he has no respect for our rule of law. We have a lot more to talk to you both about, so stick around. Okay, we'll see you back here in just a few minutes. There's a lot more to get into. But we also have this ahead, a rollout that's been filled with hiccups, issues, have made it challenging for parents to get their children the updated COVID vaccine. Dr. Sanjay Gupta here with what you need to know. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. 
Welcome back. This morning, some parents are struggling to get the updated COVID vaccine for their children as an expected winter uptick of cases looms. It is This all comes as a rollout of the new shots is facing a host of complications, making it even harder for pediatric doses, which are smaller doses, to become available due to their different size and packaging. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us live now with a lot more. Morning, Morning. to you, Sanjay. I've been hearing ads all over the place of nurses and doctors talking about the efficacy and the safety of COVID vaccines for children. So for parents who say, okay, fine, I'm going to go get it, they should be able to get it easily. What's happening? Yeah, I mean, there seems to be a few things that are going on here. First of all, keep in mind, this is the first year the federal government has not handled the rollout. Mm. Now, there's been there's been problems in the past with the rollout, to be fair, but I think that's that's part of this. You don't have sort of a national strategy here that's more of a patchwork strategy. Also, you know, another thing, when the public health emergency ended in May, several things ended alongside that, including the ability for pharmacies to give these, uh, these uh, shots to people as young as three years old. Uh, that was part of the public health emergency. Otherwise, pharmacies can't typically do it until children are at least six years old. So it makes it more challenging. You got to go to the pediatrician's office, make those appointments. Sometimes they don't have the shots, as you, as you pointed out, Poppy. There is also seems to be an increased demand. I mean, in the past, there hasn't been a huge uptake for these shots, especially in young children. But take a look at what's happened between June and September. Uh, there's been about a five-fold increase overall in hospitalizations. About half of those have been in, in children between the ages of zero and four. So really, young children are the ones that seem to be getting hit hardest by this. And I should point out, as you look at those numbers, for most children under the age of five who are hospitalized, they did not have an underlying medical condition, okay? So, you know, that, that's another reason that pediatricians are saying everyone needs to get vaccinated, not just people who you consider at high risk because of some underlying problem. Sanjay, what, if anything, is the government, the CDC, saying about the rollout up to this point? I think mainly the message we've been hearing from them is urging patients. I mean, I think a lot of pediatricians I've talked to said, why didn't they all have this in place before the start of the school year? We knew the numbers were going to get worse. But Mandy Cohen, the CDC director, was asked about it. And here's what she said. We do know that our manufacturers and distributors were getting out the adult vaccines first. Um, so that was what was shipping um, in the first number of days. And now they are shipping uh, pediatric vaccine. So what I would say is that the supply is filling out. So so we'll see over the next couple of weeks. I mean, uh, again, the there hasn't been a huge demand for this, to be honest, uh, for young people in the past. That demand seems to be higher. They wanted to get the medications to adults first, these shots. But hopefully it will fill out, like the CDC director is saying. Um, Sanjay, This new shot, we were talking to our pediatrician about it, and I had a lot of questions. And one of them was, does it help children not contract COVID? Or does it just help if they get it in terms of helping prevent them from getting quite sick? Do we know? Yeah. So this has always been a source of confusion. So let me explain it this way. It certainly helps with the second part of your question. So so people do not get as sick from it. That's always been sort of the the, the greatest attribute, if you will, of these vaccines. If you do get sick, if you do contract the virus while you have the vaccine, you could still spread it, but it may lower your chance of contracting it in the first place. Okay. So it can help in both those things. Now, if you get, people still get COVID even after they've been vaccinated and they can still transmit it. They accumulate that virus in their nose, their upper airway, and that can transmit. But it can lower your chance of getting it in the first place and lower your chance of getting sick if you do. 
both really important things. Uh, yeah. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. You got it. Well, in just a few hours, both Hunter Biden and Donald Trump will head to court. We're going to have a preview of the big legal day ahead. Stay with us. Morning, everyone. Top of the hour. So glad you're with us. We have a lot to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Tuesday, October 3rd. In just a few hours, both Hunter Biden, the president's son, and the former president, Donald Trump, will both head to court. Different courts, but it's extraordinary. The president's son set to be arraigned in a federal court in Delaware. The former president expected to head back to court right here in New York City for the second day of his civil fraud trial. And the House is headed for a historic moment. Congressman Matt Gates making good on his threat, formally filing a motion to remove Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. Charlotte Senna rescued in a dramatic raid two days after the nine-year-old girl was abducted. Police tracking down the suspect thanks to a ransom note that he allegedly wrote. And if you're just waking up, you are not a winner. I'm talking about the lottery, not hey. just generally. That's... Anybody else could be a winner, <laughs> at least when it comes to Powerball. Once again, no one hit the lucky numbers after Monday night's drawing. The estimated grand prize now sits at $1.2 billion, the largest of the year. There's still hope, I guess. And after a five-month strike, late night is back. It's kind of weird coming back after being gone for five months. The studio was empty for so long, NBC converted to a spirit Halloween. And that's just that. Thanks to the picket lines, my writers got fresh air and sunshine, and they do not care for that. <laughs> now they're back safely in their joke holes, doing what they do best, making my prompter word screen full of good and haha. This morning, two defendants, two separate courtrooms, one in New York, the other in Delaware. Historic. Both of them. Donald Trump says he'll be back in a Manhattan courtroom at 10 a.m. for the second day of his $250 million civil fraud trial. He's accused of inflating the value of his assets by billions of dollars to get better rates from banks and insurers. At the same exact time, President Biden's son, Hunter, will be arraigned in, a, in Wilmington on three felony gun charges. He's expected to plead not guilty. We're going to start with CNN's Evan Perez live outside the federal courthouse in Wilmington. Uh, Evan, what happens today in the Hunter Biden trial? And just in the next hour, we expect Hunter Biden to walk into this courthouse. Uh, he was here just two months ago, uh, about to iron out a, a plea deal that a judge uh, asked a, a couple of simple questions on, and the deal fell apart. Now he's going to be facing three counts, uh, three of them all related to his purchase of a, of a firearm back in 2018 at a time when he has said that he was addicted to drugs. That is a legal violation. It's a federal uh, law violation. It's a felony. Uh, and as a result of that, he's going to be coming in here. We expect him to plead uh, not guilty. And then he's going to go get processed by the uh, U.S. Marshals. Now, uh, you can see there's a long line of people already waiting, trying to go inside the, the, the courthouse. Uh, this is a historic day, obviously, the uh, son of the sitting president coming in here to, uh, be, to be processed for a federal crime, something that doesn't happen 
at all. So uh, we expect, however, that this is not the end for uh, Hunter Biden's legal problems. Uh, the special counsel, David Weiss, who has been overseeing this investigation for almost five years, uh, he's still investigating uh, Hunter Biden for possible tax crimes. Now, that uh, decision is coming in the next couple of weeks. He could be charged in Los Angeles where Hunter Biden lives. Now, we expect, again, to see Hunter Biden enter uh, this courthouse in the next hour for this court hearing. Phil? Right. Evan Perez for us on the ground in Wilmington. Okay. Please keep us posted. Thank you. Okay. So in a different courtroom, in a different state, here in New York City this morning, Donald Trump's $250 million civil fraud trial, that will continue. Trump's decision to attend yesterday's proceedings was both political and personal, according to sources who spoke with our Caitlin Collins. Trump stands accused of inflating the value of his, these real estate assets to get favorable loans and insurance deals. A judge has already found him liable for fraud, but is now set to determine what financial penalties and punishments he could face and consider other charges from prosecutors as well. Here's some of what Trump told reporters yesterday outside the courthouse. This is a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. We have a rogue judge. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show. It's a scam. It's a sham. And our country's gone to hell. It's all run by DOJ, which is corrupt. Frankly, our country is corrupt. Joining us now, the co-author of Donald Trump's The Art of the Deal, Tony Schwartz. Good to see you. Good to see you. It's interesting. Um, and I, I was thinking about this yesterday as well. He doesn't have to be in this courtroom because it's a civil proceeding, not criminal. He's going to have to be there for the criminal trials. But he did not go to the civil trial uh, that e the case that E. Jean Carroll brought. And as someone who co-authored a book with him, I wonder what that tells you about what is most important to him. Donald Trump's sense of value comes entirely from his net worth. So his survival, his, his emotional survival depends on looking outside himself to define his internal value, which he feels none of. He feels worthless. So when you take him, when you accuse him of having less money than he's falsely claimed he has, he feels deeply diminished. And it's one of the reasons why at that event yesterday, you saw him looking so actively agitated. Most of the time when he's accused of stuff, he doesn't look that visibly agitated. He did yesterday, and I know it's because he felt small. Does he really? I think the thing that I've always tried to figure out, having read a lot of depositions, particularly in 2016, is I was trying to figure out how his business world operated. This was well known. He was always inflating and lying and talking about numbers that simply had no basis in reality. Why is he so offended about them being called out on that in court? I like well, I mean, he's in court. He's a, a, on the verge of losing these, you know, he has an edifice complex uh, to be differentiated from an edifice complex. He, again, the size of his buildings is connected to his sense of self-worth. So he's about to be stripped of all meaning uh, or all sense of, of worthiness uh, I think it's no surprise that when that actually becomes the threat, that he becomes more engaged and more interested. Uh, we were talking earlier about the sort of campaigning from the courtroom, right? He, he even said yesterday, I could be in this state, I could be in that state, but I'm here in New York and I'm in the courtroom and he called this a witch hunt. Do you expect to see, would you, given how you knew him prior, 
more of this? I mean, this is going to be a months-long trial, it looks like. Well, he's, a, he's dancing for the next 12 months, really, 13 months, because he's he going to be moving between the campaign trail and courtrooms. And I think he's trying to, and quite honestly, he's been quite successful at it. He's trying to take something that should be ending his career and landing him in prison. I, I think it I think it will uh, lead to guilty convictions. I don't know if it'll land him in prison. He's trying to have that on the one hand and then run for president on the other. So I think going back and forth between claiming these are witch hunts and shams um, is, first of all, a way for him to raise money. He's done that very successfully after each indictment. Uh, but it's, second of all, a way for him to change the narrative. The I'm fascinated by the details of this case because I think the valuations and the way in which they're trying to defend themselves, particularly the uh, Alina Haba's defense, they're Mona Lisa's. This is a t- everything's wrong. Um, based on kind of your knowledge, your interactions with him, the valuation process, did he believe any of this was actually what he claimed it was worth? Absolutely not. Not for a second. How do you know? Well, I mean, I, I knew him very well, and I knew he would talk about he would, valuations. He, he would wink at me, you know, frequently, like, "Can you believe it?" When he was putting on one of these shows, when he was playing P.T. Barnum, when he was making a claim that wasn't true, did he ever actually explicitly say to me, "By the way, Tony, I'm lying"? No, he didn't. But. He literally had that wink, and I dreamt about that wink after he announced for president. I dreamt about it for a period of time. It, was so, it made such a big imprint on me that he, he's a public performer. There's nothing inside. He is truly the definition of an empty suit. So he, his whole way of being is built around how he presents himself publicly. We appreciate you coming in. We'll watch. We'll see what happens today. He says he's going to be in the courtroom again. That trial starts pretty soon. Thank you. Thank you. All eyes on the Capitol this morning to see how House Speaker Kevin McCarthy responds to a fellow Republican formally filing a motion to remove him from his leadership post. Live look at beautiful Washington, D.C. this morning, Capitol Hill, where not such a beautiful battle is brewing between Speaker McCarthy and Congressman Matt Gates. It's all set to begin. A vote could come as soon as today. And it looks like McCarthy may need Democrats to save his job from a Republican revolt. Overnight, Congressman Matt Gates made his move and triggered a vote to potentially oust his own leader. That hasn't happened in more than a century. Well, I have enough Republicans where at this point next week, one of two things will happen. Kevin McCarthy won't be the Speaker of the House or he'll be the Speaker of the House working at the pleasure of the Democrats. And I'm at peace with either result because the American people deserve to know who governs them. Well, this morning, House Democrats are getting ready to meet as they decide whether to help keep McCarthy in power. And we're told McCarthy might try and kill the measure today. He has some procedural options, but he needs Democrats to pull them off. He can only afford to lose Four Republicans, five, have already said they would vote to get rid of McCarthy. Explicitly, he needs Democrats, and Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, we will see what they have to say going forward. At the moment, it's not just the five who've already declared. There's also at least 13 other Republicans who are undecided but open to voting McCarthy out. Back with us for more on this and a lot of other stuff as well, Alyssa Farrah Griffin and Cassidy Hutchinson. Um, Cassidy, I want to start with you, because 
uh, I first became familiar with you because we were always standing in the hallways on Capitol Hill when you were working with White House legislative affairs. You know Speaker McCarthy. You had a close relationship with him. I'm sure you're familiar with Matt Gates. Everybody up there is. Um, this dynamic that has played out and led to this point, are you surprised by it? No, Phil, I'm not surprised at all. Um, you know, Matt is an unserious politician, and that's something that a lot of House Republicans and, frankly, House Democrats have recognized for a very long time. Matt is in office for himself. Matt is more concerned about getting sound bites and about making an image for himself than he is about passing effective policy. We see that with what's playing out on the Hill right now. It, he is single-handedly uprooting the Republican Party, which is already hanging on by a thread. And this is just, it's a symptom of the greater problem with the Republican Party right now, too. You know, I, we need to focus on, effect, on electing effective leaders to Congress and not people like Matt Gates who are willing to hold government funding hostage because of, of a personal qualm that he has with the Speaker of the House. But, and over the referral to the Ethics Committee, et cetera. And, but we are where we are now. And he may be unserious un in your view. He's, he's smart and he can act um, in a savvy manner and he's not going to give up, right? We know those things. So I wonder, Alyssa, how this plays out. Can he pull it off? There's basically one of two scenarios that I think we're going to frankly learn once Democrats meet. Either some Democrats are going to come and vote with House Republicans to table this measure, basically put it on the back burner. It's privileged, so a, a vote is forced. They can't just in not two vote days. On this in the next two days. Or, I mean, there is a world, I don't think this is as likely that Democrats say, let's let Republicans display their chaos on the House floor. There were 15 rounds to make Kevin McCarthy speaker. We can go all day. Hakeem Jeffries knows he has the full support of his conference. And there is something kind of stark about hearing every Democrat line up and say, Hakeem Jeffries, Hakeem Jeffries. And Lord knows what names Republicans might throw around. Um, I sense moderates are getting extremely frustrated. Mike Lawler's been outspoken about this. I mean, it looks like a clown show. We have, what, 43 days to fund the government. But to Cassie's point, this is personal with Matt Gates. It goes even before the Ethics Committee. He's got a personal beef with McCarthy. But even if it is a Scalise, I think he's going to do the same thing in a matter of, you know, several months. You think Gates is? Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, if this is truly about spending and having a full approach process and an open amendment process... Congress hasn't worked like that in 30 years. I think it probably should. It's not going to change overnight. And he's just going to end up pulling this next time there's a vote he doesn't think is popular. The most work they've ever gotten done on appropriations yes. in a single year was the same year as the longest shutdown in the history oh. of the country over the course of the last three decades. There's your random appropriations fact of the day. Um, Cassie, I want to go back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of your book and your experiences. Um, I have been waiting to talk to you both at the same time uh, since your book came out. Because of how the January 6th committee operated, your public testimony, which we all saw, and I think it kind of Riveting. shook the, 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 certainly the mores of the, the Congress, but also the country, um, and your involvement in getting to that point. Walk through how that happened. So I, I go into detail about this in the book, but essentially there were pages of my public, pages of my transcript that were released publicly. And I had been struggling with not being completely forthcoming with the committee, but it was something that I was sort of just trying to bury under the carpet for myself. You know, I had towed the line with Trump World for quite some time, about a year and a half at that point after the administration ended. And it was a comfortable place for me to be in. I was very uncomfortable. I was very adamant that what happened on January 6th was bad, but I didn't want to be that voice to come out. Um, I say that with shame now. I, I recognize the mistakes and I recognize the flaws I had in all of this. But I also 
you know, I exhausted my resources trying to find an attorney to work for me or pro bono or at a low cost. I had no financial resources. So I'm reading through these pages and, you know, I, I just have this like moral reckoning where I realize that I, I have to do something. And I spoke with a member of Congress who was, did not serve on the committee as a re Republican member of Congress who suggested that I do the mirror test to look in the mirror and see if I'm looking at the person I can live with for, for the rest of my life. Um, so then I realized I couldn't, <laughs> or I didn't want to at least. So I reached out to my dear friend Alyssa, who I, we had spoken after the end of the administration a little bit, but it was a little awkward for us mm. for a bit too, because I was trying to toe the party line. And she was a very outspoken voice and a very courageous voice. Um, so I went to her house and, you know, it's sort of one of those emotional for me to look back on now, but you know, she had no reason to open the door that day. And I, I don't mean that in like, try to exaggerate it at all. Like she, but she did, she opened the door and she welcomes me inside. And we talked about what I was facing, the moral dilemmas that I was facing and, you know, um, well, and I, I was stunned with what she was, what she shared with him because I left December 4th. So I missed kind of the craziest stretch of the stop the steal pressure on Mike Pence campaign. And she said they didn't ask the right questions. And you laid out for me some of the things, you know, which we now saw in that Meaning block. the committee in the. Public. Yes, the yeah. kit committee. And what we ultimately came up with is I said, you know, I'm going to back channel to Congresswoman Liz Cheney and say she has more she wants to share. She doesn't feel empowered to because she's got this Trump world attorney. And you ultimately were able to get an incredible pro bono attorney and drop that Trump world attorney. But I think there's like two things that are so important here. There's a lot of people in Trump world who are having their bills paid and feel like they can't tell the full truth of what they know because of that. There's always a way to break. There's always somebody who's going to be willing to represent you pro bono because these cases are too important for the public. But also, it's never too late to, to come forward. Like, that's I couldn't believe you felt any level of, like, shame around it. Like, there's a lot of people who have truth to tell that just have not come forward, and I think they should feel empowered. And the truth was so important that all of a sudden we hear there's going to be this hearing with one witness, and it's going to be, be you. I, I want to dig in on something that you said to Caitlin last night in your interview with her on The Source. You said all roads lead to Mark Meadows. Can you elaborate on that? So Caitlin and I were discussing uh, if Mark were to be completely forthcoming with uh, Jack Smith and his investigation. And what I meant and mean by that is what I provided the committee with, I, I won't say it had value. I'm not going to make that determination. It's the investigator's job to determine the value that that had. But I think what I had to offer the committee was a roadmap of who knew what, who was in what meetings. Mark was in most of those meetings, if not all of those meetings. Mark was privy to everything on the president's calendar. Mark knew everybody who the president spoke with. Mark, if not quite literally, by, if Mark was not quite literally by the president's side, he was getting emails about what he, his happenings. He was getting phone calls from him. Mark knows far more than I know. So if he wants to be completely forthcoming and share what he knows and uphold the oath that he swore to protect and defend the United States, Mark is the person that can open those doors effectively. It's great to have you. Congratulations on the book. A lot of bravery to put it out there. Thank you. Thank you, me. Melissa. Well. Thank you as well. I'm not surprised you opened the door. <laughs> the kind of person you are. Thanks.
Well, also this morning, nine-year-old Charlotte Sinna has been found safe and returned to her family after an intense two-day search. Officials tell CNN the suspect was arraigned on a first-degree kidnapping charge earlier this morning. We're going to give you the latest details coming up next. Also, dangerous levels of salt water draining into the Mississippi River are potentially having an irreparable effect on Louisiana. When you look this way and you look that way, you're, you're looking at water. We're in the middle of water, but we're in the middle of the wrong kind of water. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This just in, officials tell CNN that the suspect in the abduction of nine-year-old Charlotte Senna has been charged with first-degree kidnapping. The Albany Times Union reports he was arraigned early this morning. New York Governor Kathy Hochul last night detailing the critical clue that led to her rescue. She literally drove up to the family's mailbox, assuming they were not home. 4.20 in the morning, opens the mailbox and inserts the ransom note, leaving a critical piece of evidence behind his own fingerprint. Charlotte was rescued yesterday evening, two days after she vanished during a bike ride at a New York State Park where she was camping with her family. Her bike was found in one of the park's loops that triggered a multi-day search that ended with a SWAT team raiding the suspect's home where Charlotte was found in a cabinet. Joining us now, someone who has covered this story extensively, the managing editor for the Albany Times Union paper, overseeing the Capitol Bureau and investigations, Brendan Lyons, and CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller also joins us. Brendan, let me begin with you. Thank goodness. This is the answer to everyone's prayers, especially her family. What more can you tell us beyond the details that were shared there by the governor? I can tell you that I don't believe they had a suspect until... Craig Ross drove up to that mailbox yesterday at 4.20 in the morning. So that was really um, a, a, a breakthrough that I don't think they expected and were gifted. And um, it made a big difference. Ten hours after that, the fingerprint on that note was was uh, relayed to a DWI arrest from 1999. And then at that point, they started moving fast to get search warrants. They located every residence that had uh, or, and property which Mr. Ross was tied to and pinpointed a, a, a trailer that was uh, behind his mom's mobile home on Barrett Road in the town of Milton, which is about 13 miles south of where this family had li- uh, lives. John, it doesn't seem, or at least it hadn't seemed like there was any connection between this individual and the family, at least that we knew as of this morning. What more do we know about him at this point? Well, we know he's got a history of minor arrests. um, And basically, I think a lot of what we're going to see today, Phil, is them going with a fine tooth comb through his background and then working with the family to figure out, is there any crossover? Was this targeted or was this just an opportunity where he planned a kidnapping um, and took a child because the child happened to be alone? Uh, There's a lot of questions, and she may have some of the answers. Remember, she said, after riding around that loop with the other kids, that's loop A in the park, um, I want to go around one more time by myself. Uh, That could have been an impulse, which is a kid trying uh, to get some early independence. Uh, Or did somebody say, you know, come back here and I'll give you X. Um, And all of that's going to be unfolding today. Their first order of business was to get her to a hospital. Uh, Aside from the criminal piece of this, the victimology is going to be very important, making sure that she 
gets the proper care immediately, the psychological first aid that she and her family are going to need. But all this has to happen in tandem. Brennan, have you or, or any of your colleagues spoken with anyone in, in her family? Uh, briefly, one of my colleagues spoke to one of the parents early on during the search. Um, the mother didn't have much to say at that point. Obviously, they were so distraught and overwhelmed with the with the uh, disappearance of their daughter. And on on to his point on the whether this was a targeted uh, kidnapping or not, I think that right now they've they've been able to pinpoint the suspect being in that park in that area on the day of the kidnapping due to probably cell phone records, possibly license plate readers. But those cell phone records, they can go back in time and and figure out how long he was in that park and whether he had been monitoring that family either overnight or through the day or only for minutes. It could have been that lightning struck when he drove in and saw opportunity. John Brennan made the point that they didn't have any suspects, didn't sound like they had any suspects prior to the ransom note. Was that just an extraordinarily lucky break for law enforcement, given the time window these investigations usually operate within? You know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. Uh, You start off with zero suspects, and then you have to make your own work. So that means going through all the registered sex offenders in the area. That means going through any arrests that might have had to do with luring a child or unlawful imprisonment. That means looking at people on probation and parole That means comparing those to the records of people who bought tickets for entry to the park. All of those wheels uh, were turning, and I know Brendan knows this as well. Uh, But then when you get this envelope dropped off by a car that disappears into the night, um, that was opportunity. I remember um, in the case of Cesar Sayak, you may remember him. He was the individual who was sending pipe bombs all around New York City. we had zero as far as a suspect. I went to bed at 1.30 that morning. By 4.35 a.m., the lab had developed a print, gotten DNA from a hair, matched that to a record, was pinging a phone of a car moving down a highway. So these things can turn around on a dime. And thank God this one did when it did. Thank goodness that she's home safe with her parents. Thank you, John. Brendan, to your team and all the reporting, thank you. Well, when your phone goes off tomorrow afternoon... Don't be alarmed. The government is actually going to be testing its emergency alert system and wireless emergency alerts. This means all radios, TVs, and cell phones will be sent an alert starting at 2.20 p.m. Eastern time tomorrow. FEMA is trying to prevent any mistakes in its system like it has in the past. In 2018, an accidental alert of incoming ballistic missiles sent the state of Hawaii into a panic. And earlier this year, Floridians woke up at 5 a.m. to a test alert on their phone meant for TV only. Happening today, Democrats will meet to decide on the fate of Kevin McCarthy's leadership. You are looking live at Capitol Hill, where just moments from now, both Republicans and Democrats are set to meet with their respective caucus and conferences to determine potentially the fate of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Now, this comes as Republican Congressman Matt Gates has followed through on his threat to move to oust the Speaker of the House. Well, I have enough Republicans where at this point next week, one of two things will happen. Kevin McCarthy won't be the Speaker of the House or he'll be the Speaker of the House working at the pleasure of the Democrats. And I'm at peace with either result because the American people deserve to know who governs them. 
Now, McCarthy will now be required to put a resolution on the legislative schedule setting up a potential showdown on the House floor. Unequivocally, there will be a showdown on the House floor. It would take a majority vote for the motion vacate to succeed. And McCarthy is expected to take procedural steps to kill the measure as soon as potentially today. Joining us now is Congressman Dusty Johnson, a Republican from South Dakota. He's also somebody who, whether it's on the spending agreements or this particular issue, has always been in the room at the table uh, trying to figure out a path forward uh, to some degree. Congressman, I, I appreciate your time this morning. I want to start with kind of where things stand right now. There are clearly enough Republicans that are willing to join Congressman Gates. Um, you are a member who also has relationships across the aisle. Do you have any sense of whether or not Democrats will help Speaker McCarthy here? First off, let's make sure we're clear about the math. There are 10 times more Republicans backing Kevin McCarthy than are backing uh, Mad Gates at least 10 times more, maybe 15 or 20 times more. Uh, yeah, Mad Gates is going to try uh, an unauthorized coup. He is trying to get some of the most uh, liberal voices on the Democratic side to help him. Uh, I know Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been a vocal supporter of his efforts. To answer your question, though, I do think there are going to be a number of Democrats who understand that this kind of chaos does not serve our country well, that we've got a southern bordering crisis and we only have the government funded for 40 more days, maybe we should actually focus on solving a few problems than these kind of D.C. parlor games. You mentioned solving problems. You're also a member of the Problem Solvers Caucus. Oftentimes in moments like this, the Problem Solvers Caucus, some of their members can serve as kind of middlemen between Democratic leadership and Republican leadership. Has that been happening here? Have you guys been trying to work to mediate uh, a relationship that isn't exactly at a great place right now? There aren't a lot of things that unify Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Uh, listen, we're at a deeply divided time, but one thing that does uh, bring the problem solvers together is this idea that uh, the stone throwers, the people who only love to knock things down, should not be running the House. It is hard to build anything in this really toxic political environment. So when you have dedicated people who actually want to find a legislative accomplishment, I think it's frustrating to them that you've got somebody who just their only purpose in seven years has been going around and kicking everybody else's sandcastle. Uh, listen, the time for the chaos agents uh, like Matt, Matt Gates uh, to be getting uh, publicity needs to be in the rearview mirror. We've got to focus on work. And yes, I do think there'll be plenty of folks on both sides of the aisle who acknowledge that. I was struck that you referred to, in the lead-up to uh, the potential government shutdown, you referred to it as stupid, uh, which was blunt and <laughs> accurate, and to give an opinion if I can. Uh, if that was stupid, what is this? Oh, this is, uh, this is insanity. I, I, I don't know how Matt Gates can go to his constituents who are concerned about the government shutting down in 40 days, who are concerned about the southern border, who are concerned about a $33 trillion debt, who are concerned about urban crime on the rise. I mean, last night we had a congressman carjacked in this town. That's not the big problem. The big problem is that that kind of thing happens to everyday Americans thousands of times a day. And yet, today, instead of doing interviews about how we can tackle fentanyl and meth, all of us are doing interviews on why does Matt Gates hate Kevin McCarthy so much and why hasn't he been able to check his middle school grudges at the door and do his job. This is insanity. Uh, you were, to, to mention what you would like to be doing right now, uh, there are now, I think, 44, 43 days until uh, the next government funding deadline. You, you were integral to the debt ceiling agreement that I think people hoped would help clear a pathway to full year spending bills. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, do you think it's remotely possible to get all appropriations done in 43 days, assuming you aren't having a battle for the speaker for the next several weeks? If we don't have a battle for the speakership, yes. Uh, we passed out three bills uh, last week. We have made progress. I mean, the, the House has passed 10 bills out of committee, two others out of the subcommittee. That's all 12 appropriations bills. So the House is very close to having its work done. Now it's going to take some time uh, to bring amendments up on the floor and vote on those. I'm not saying that we're at the one-yard line, but we have made incredibly good progress. The Senate probably needs to pick up their pace a little bit if we're going to get this done in 42 or 43 days. But yes, if we actually roll up our sleeves, if we're big boys and big girls, we can get our work done. If we're going to be involved in uh, instead in a, in a battle for the speakership, everything else, everything else is pushed by the wayside uh, and instead, we, we fight about the leadership of Kevin McCarthy. Uh, I do want to ask you before I let you go, uh, Ukraine funding was not in the continuing resolution. The administration has continued to push for it. There's a bipartisan level of support on Capitol Hill for additional funding. There's been a lot of question whether or not the speaker and the president have some kind of deal or agreement related to the pathway for that going forward. Do you, are you aware of that? Do, would you know what the pathway is for more Ukraine uh, emergency funding? Well, I can state categorically there's no deal between the speaker and the president. Uh, they didn't talk that day. They didn't talk the day before. That, uh, those are allegations just entirely made up out of whole cloth. That being said, the fact that Ukraine aid was stripped out should not indicate that there isn't a bipartisan level of support for Ukraine. Instead, most members don't want to drib and drab billion-dollar package after billion-dollar package. They want to make sure that there is a strategic plan, that there's accountability, and they want to have a comprehensive sense of what, uh, what kind of uh, investment would actually make a difference toward pushing back against uh, Putin's uh, illegal and reprehensible invasion. All right, Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota, Republican. Busy day ahead. We've gone from stupid to insane. Uh, let's see if we can move on from that. I appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Bill, with the optimistic outlook for us there. Great conversation. All right, this is ahead, and it's fascinating and important. A drought in Louisiana bringing salt water into the Mississippi, where obviously it should not be. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, here with the impact on New Orleans straight ahead. Bill? Good morning from NOLA, Poppy. That's right, the, the mighty Mississippi, not so mighty. So it set up a new modern battle of New Orleans. The Army Corps versus time and salt. We'll tell you all about it coming up next. Louisiana is facing a new problem. Too little fresh water, too much salt water. A drought has allowed salt water from the Gulf of Mexico to creep into the Mississippi River. It's now threatening to contaminate the supply of drinking water, and it's only a matter of time before this all impacts New Orleans. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us live from NOLA with more. You've been warning us about this, and now we're seeing it in real time. Yeah, Louisiana is really a canary in the coal mine, uh, sadly, these days. They lose about uh, a football field every hour and a half to rising seas and sinking lands. So much history in this place. Uh, good morning from Jackson Square. You can almost smell the beignets here, but it, it is tainted with this worry of Old Man River being not so mighty anymore. In a good year, the, the waves would be lapping up on these bottom steps right now. You can see it's as woefully low and about 50 miles downriver is an invisible threat creeping this way at walking speed, but the stakes are huge. In South Louisiana, folks are plenty familiar with salt water that moves at the speed of a hurricane. But now they must also worry about salt water that creeps 
steady and invisible toward the crops, machines, and drinking water systems of almost a million people. I happen to be one who believes in the power of prayer. I'm going to ask for people to pray for rain. After a second straight year of extraordinary drought, the not-so-mighty Mississippi is too weak to hold back the Gulf of Mexico. So the heavier salt water is running downhill towards New Orleans in the shape of a wedge, with the tow about 15 miles in front of the kind of inundation that could threaten the health of the vulnerable and destroy everything from lead pipes to appliances. So the Army Corps of Engineers is urgently racing against time and salt with a couple different tools. This is the first of what will be many barges that can bring about a half million gallons of fresh water at a time. Downstream, they use it to dilute the brackish stuff as it goes into a small water plant here in Plaquemine Parish. The Corps says they can move 36 million gallons a day, but even that wouldn't be enough to save the New Orleans water supply. So they're already talking about maybe building pipelines to prop up that water system. In the meantime, the Corps is also building a big a sill, like an underwater speed bump, to try to slow the wedge as it moves inland. But these are all temporary fixes. And the leader of this parish says, if this is the new normal, that means parts of Louisiana will need the same kind of desalination that they use in Israel and other desert communities. You've had one trailer would be the reverse osmosis, and the other would be the filtration system right there. Keith Hinckley is the president of Plaquemine Parish, a spread out county of less than 25,000, now spending a fortune on desalination. If we didn't have help from the state and the federal government, it could bankrupt the parish here. So, right? yeah, yeah. Because we're probably right now about $33 million in on this situation. No and like I said, we're a small parish. Just this summer, just this yeah, wedge. Yeah, just because of this wedge. Wow. Yeah. This is land that's familiar with hurricanes. Oh, and this. Flooding, not yeah. droughts and wildfires. Right, How right. How do you because, reconcile these well, things? Well, because like you say, when you look this way and you look that way, you're, you're looking at water. We're in the middle of water, but we're in the middle of the wrong kind of water, and that's why we're needing these, uh, these kind of machines. There is hope El Nino will bring rare October rain, but this battle could last months, with the latest forecast putting the wedge close to New Orleans in the next three weeks. Yeah. But it's happened two years in a row, because this is considered to be a pattern. Lieutenant General Russell Honore led the military recovery efforts after Hurricane Katrina and says that was the first disaster that made him consider the costs of climate change. Now retired, it is the focus of his work as an environmental activist in his native Louisiana. For the first time in my life, uh, a couple of weeks ago, the governor declared a wildfire emergency. I've never heard of that in Louisiana before. This time of the year, we normally go to church on Sunday, the priests are praying for no hurricanes. Uh, we need to turn that and ask them to start praying for thunderstorms. You know, yesterday we had floods in New York. Who would have thought? This time of year, the floods are in the Gulf. Yeah. Not in New York and the city flooded. So the climate is changing quicker than we are adapting. Saltwater intrusion also becoming an annoyance in South Florida, Miami, to have these sunny day king tides where the saltwater just bubbles up out of the manhole covers there. It's farmland in the mid-Atlantic region. They've seen encroachment there, salty patches spreading. Uh, but here, this is a special place uh, because of the so much commerce coming up and down this river here because of the history, uh, the petrochemicals, the, the energy systems here. This is a very, very valuable place. Fresh water is vital to this place. So we'll be watching with keen interest over the next couple of weeks 
hoping that rain arrives. Yeah, of course. Bill, we, Poppy? Of course we will, Bill. Thank you so much for your reporting from Louisiana for us. Phil. Well, former President Trump says he'll be back in court today after attacking the attorney general prosecuting him and sounding off on the judge who will determine the fate of his business empire. His New York civil case is just the latest legal challenge. He also faces 91 criminal charges and four criminal cases. But have all these legal setbacks had any impact on his momentum in the 2024 race? CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton took a look at those numbers, and he joins us now from the ma magic wall. Harry, you're our expert. We do these check-ins often. Yeah. Where do things stand right now in the polls? So often we look at the primary. I want to look at the general election, because in the primary, we know Trump has been gaining. But how about in the general, potential general election matchup against Joe Biden? All right, definitely or probably would vote for in the 2024 general election. Look, back in July, according to Monmouth University, it was Biden by seven. Look where we are now. Well within the margin of error. Trump... 43%. He's actually gained. Biden's dropped by five points down to 42%. Look how close we are. Now, of course, this is just one poll. Let's expand out and look at some other surveys. All right. Change in Trump's margin versus Biden. Latest poll versus the prior one. ABC News, WAPO. Trump gains four. NBC News, Trump gains four on the margin. Fox News, Trump gains five. So pretty much no matter what poll you're looking at, Trump's actually gaining, not just in the primary, but the general election as well. Do we have a sense of, of why? I mean, Trump has long said, I'm going to hurt him, maybe help him in the polls. Look what's happening. Yeah. So I think there are basically two things that are going on in the voters' minds. One, Trump carried out a crime in response to the 2020 outcome. 46% of voters believe that now. Compare that to Biden is too old to effectively serve another term. The vast majority of voters, look at that, 76%. These back and forth are but basically going on in the voters' minds. Which way am I going to go? It's these two things. And all of this discussion about whether Trump carried out a crime, look how steady these numbers are. April of 2022 is 46%. January 2023, 48%. 46% now. So the fact is, despite all the press around this, the same percentage believe that Trump carried out a crime in response to the 2020 outcome. So What's fascinating is that everybody says, all right, we know it's going to do well in the primary. It's, nothing's going to hurt him there. The general is where this is going to have a huge impact. And it still may. But right now, Harry's number saying not so much. Not so much. Not at this point. Trump is actually gaining it in the general election, at least according to these polls. Thank you, Harry. Appreciate it, Thank you. Appreciate the best. it. Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill about to caucus to decide the fate of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The president's son, Hunter Biden, and former President Trump both expected in court shortly. Needless to say, it is a busy day ahead. We have it all covered for you here on CNN. CNN News Central starts after this. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.